I don't know how many times I have heard people say or read words that something like, we want to be a sound congregation. When I was a kid, I heard that all the time. We want to be a sound church, a sound congregation. And I'll be honest with you, it took me a while to figure out what that meant. I thought, we have a good sound system? What, what, what is this talking about? Until we understand that the word sound, in, when used in that fashion, just means healthy. That's all the word means. We want to be a, a healthy congregation. And that fits very well what we're thinking about in these three lessons, this being the second, that we're considering these three weeks from Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to turn back to that text we read a little while ago because we're going to be in that text again this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. It's easy to say we want to be a sound congregation. And most of the time when we use that terminology, we're thinking about the teaching of a church. Do we hold to the, the, the truths of the New Testament? Are we making sure that we're standing firm on what the New Testament says? I hope that we are. Sometimes, though, I fear that I've known some places that we're a sound church, we're a sound congregation, and what they mean by that is more than do we just hold the teachings of the New Testament. In other words, if you don't do every last little detail the way we do them, then that's a problem, including things that aren't found in, in the Bible. But if we understand that we're talking about following the New Testament and defending the New Testament and holding to the New Testament only, then yes, I want to be a sound congregation. As we continue these thoughts in Ephesians chapter 4, we're thinking in a series that we are calling Healthy Things Grow. Last week, you remember, we spent some time in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And we thought about the fact that for a church to be healthy, there must be healthy attitudes. We spent a lot of time focusing on that phrase found in verse 3, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we defined that out and, and discovered those words that really what Paul said there is, we must exert every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But we also made mention of the fact that's not all that it takes for a congregation to be healthy. I mentioned to you last week that these three lessons were originally going to be one lesson, but I just couldn't do that. I, I talked too much. I, I, just, I just couldn't do that. I wanted to dig down into each of these three areas, but we need to make sure that we don't so emphasize one of the three that we exclude the others. Do we need to have healthy attitudes? Absolutely. And in verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, that phrase, the unity of the Spirit, is really overriding everything that Paul will write about. But it's not just an attitude thing. Because we must also have healthy teaching or healthy doctrine. The church has to teach something. But it's not been left up to us what to teach. The doctrine, the teaching, has already been laid out for us in the pages of the New Testament. As, as Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 4, he writes what probably is the most famous section of this chapter, or at least this part of Ephesians chapter 4, and it's a section we usually call the seven ones. Now, these seven ones are not meant to be every last thing that we teach or hold to. For example, if you read through that list you're not going to find how we are to worship. There's no, there's no th saying in the seven ones that says you must sing. It's just not there. Or that we pray to get prayer is not listed in those seven ones. Preaching is not mentioned in those seven ones specifically. But these seven ones, as they're often called, 
are meant to be the foundational, or we might say the core, of the teachings that we are to hold to together. Keep in mind, all of this is one long sermon. If we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verse 3, then part of what helps us do that is holding to the seven ones of verses 4, 5, and 6. That's part of what leads to that unity. I cannot tell you how many sermons and articles and presentations I have heard on the seven ones, Ephesians chapter 4, that never mentioned verses 1, 2, and 3. It's all one context. Paul wrote all of this together. And if I may tie this to last week, and then we'll get into the list itself, I want us all to remember what I said near the end of the lesson last week, that nobody is going to care if we hold to the seven ones beginning in verse 4 if we do not display the unity of the Spirit mentioned in verse 3. The healthy attitudes are necessary. We studied that last week. But healthy teaching is also necessary. And so this morning, what I want to do is just take the time to look through these seven ones. You may think, well, we're going to be here forever. Don't worry. I'm not talking about each one for all that long because part of the point that Paul is making is the list itself. Now, obviously, each one could have its own lesson. But the point of it is the list itself. And so we're going to just mention each one for a couple of minutes each. And think about what Paul had in mind as he gave us these seven core fundamental doctrines that we are to hold to together. He first said that there must be one body. Now, this had to resonate with those early readers of this book. If you were here last week, you may remember that we took the time to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We read that whole context without any con- uh, uh, comment whatsoever. And the reason we did that was to point out that this early church was made up of a couple of different kinds of people. There were Jews who had become Christians, and there were Gentiles, non-Jews, who had become Christians. Some of those Gentiles probably had a very pagan background. And Paul, in that context, Ephesians chapter 2, was telling them there's no longer Jew, there's no longer Gentile, you're one because of what Christ has done. I think it is extremely significant then that this is the first thing that Paul puts on this list of the seven ones. There is one body. There is not a Jewish Christian body and a Gentile Christian body meeting together in Ephesus. There is a Christian body. You are one body. But you know, even if that section of Ephesians chapter 2 wasn't a part of the book, even if Paul just skipped over that part, he had already made that point clear even earlier in the book. If you're in the book of Ephesians, you might have turned back one page. Notice what is found in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Paul said there, Ephesians 1, verse 22, And He, that is God, put all things under His, Jesus' feet, and gave Him as head, singular, over all things to the church, singular, which is His body, singular, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus is the one head of the one church, which is His one body. And so even if that section in Ephesians chapter 2 wasn't there about the no, no Jew and no Gentile, we know there is but one body, there is but one church, because Paul said that specifically. And you've heard the illustration, notes on how many times there are just as many heads as there are churches, and there are just as many churches as there are heads, and both of them are singular. 
In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus made that great promise. I will build my church, singular, and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it, singular. There's only one way to put it, folks. Jesus either failed or he succeeded. There's, no, there's not another option. He either built his church, singular, or he didn't. And Paul makes it clear in this particular letter, as well as the book of Colossians, the book of Acts makes it clear, the book of Romans makes it clear, and other writings as well, that Jesus succeeded. And he succeeded in building the one church, which is his body. We need to be reminded that Jesus had his heart's desire, as we mentioned last week, that his followers would be one. I know it goes against the way people want to talk today, but denominationalism was never in the heart of God. Never. He wants his people to be one. In fact, they are one. There is one body. And then Paul writes, there is one spirit. I think it's significant that Paul puts this near the beginning of the list because he had just used the term in verse 3, hey, not unity of the Spirit. And now the second thing on the list is there is one Spirit. By the way, as we go through this, you'll notice you'll also see one Lord, Jesus, and one Father. The whole Trinity is listed among these seven ones. But Paul makes it clear that there is but one Spirit. Again, consider the original readers first when you look at the things on this list. Now, this is, this is going to be really obvious. You're going to go, boy, I'm glad I came to church this morning, this morning to learn this because the New Testament wasn't done yet. I mean, Paul's writing part of it, okay? So when they got the book of Ephesians, they're getting part of what we would know to be the completion of the New Testament. And you go, well, so what? How would they know that what they were reading was true? That what they were reading was what God would have them to do or to, to know? How would they know when someone came in to preach that what he was saying was true when they, don't, they didn't have the full New Testament. Well, there were a couple of ways. One was they were still living in the miraculous age. The miracles of the first century were done to confirm the Word. They weren't just to heal somebody or just to speak in tongues or whatever it was. They were to confirm that what was being said and taught was truly from God. That was always the intent of them. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 without stopping. That's the point of those three chapters. It's that the, the preaching of the Word, excuse me, the performing of miracles was always to confirm what was being taught as being divine. But also, they would have known that if the Spirit is who gave the message, and if the Spirit is divine, He will never contradict Himself. And so if someone comes and gives a teaching, and it is in accordance with what the Spirit has revealed, we should accept it. But if someone comes along and gives a teaching and we compare it to what the Spirit has already revealed, remember, these people don't have the full New Testament yet, but if they, they see that it fits with what has already been written by the Spirit, they follow it. If it doesn't, they don't. You and I live in a time when we don't have to worry about those things anymore. We see the fullness of the New Testament given. We're to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3. Peter remind us that God has given us all things that pertain both to life and to godliness. All Scripture is spirited by God, breathed out by God, inspired, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished through and through to every good work. When you and I hear someone teach, we know where to go to find what to compare it to. 
The Spirit-given Word. He is one. And so what He gives is fully unified. Number three, Paul writes about the fact that there is one hope. And I think it's interesting that this has a description. The one hope that belongs to your call. What, what is that one hope? And by the way, if you were really paying attention to the prayer we read in just a few moments ago, as Brother David led us, we prayed it. We prayed what the hope was. Because the hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the one hope of our calling. And I just hit the button one more time. There we go. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's 58 verses long. But the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15, that's the point that Paul was making. What if Christ had not been raised from the dead? Well, your faith is vain. Our preaching is vain. You're still in your sins. And on and on on he goes. But halfway through that chapter he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, you and I will rise as well. If we are faithful. We have a lot of things we can hope for in this world. But the one hope that we hang everything else on. Is in the fact that Jesus overcame death. The book of Hebrews describes it as the anchor of our soul. But in Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. The apostle Paul said. We thank God always. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I love those opening verses of that book. Because what Paul is saying in part is this. You have faith in Christ. I hope he he could say that of us. You have love for one another. I hope he could say that of us. But why do they have those things? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Why do we do what we do? In part, it's because this life isn't all there is. Because Jesus has given us hope. Now again, consider the original readers. Some of these Christians at Ephesus would have come out of a Jewish background. They could have been tempted to have faith in Jesus, but also hold to a few things of the Old Testament. Others had come out of maybe a very pagan background. And they could have been tempted to have hope in Jesus but also still hold to some kind of ritual or rite of their pagan religion or maybe some family god or something like that. And Paul says, no, there is one hope. One. The law of Moses isn't it. Some pagan ritual, pagan ceremony, that's not it. Some idol you may have in your house, that's not it. The one hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our world needs to hear that today. There is one hope for every person. And it's Jesus Christ. We prayed a few minutes ago about some of the tragedies that have happened in our nation in the last week or so. And I don't want to get political. I don't want to get into specific issues. But folks, the one thing, whether we agree or disagree on every single last little detail that we can throw up on Facebook and everything else and watch the news, the one thing that every Christian had better agree on when it comes to those things is this. The only hope for our nation is Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's the end of the list. And that's true also of our own hope, our individual hope, the one hope. Then Paul says, there is also one Lord. Now considering that the Spirit had already been listed and that the Father will be the last thing on the list, this obviously is speaking of Jesus Christ. And by the way, knowing that the Spirit 
Lord Jesus and Father are going to be listed together shows us the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll notice that again when we get to the end. But the idea that there is one Lord, that may be straightforward enough, but there's something that needs to be emphasized when we consider that word. And that is what the word Lord means. Obviously, you could translate the word as master. But sometimes we can so emphasize that that we forget it also carries the idea of respect. You can actually translate this word as sir as well. There is a, a sense in which, yes, Jesus is master, but he's also worthy of our respect. There's a relationship aspect to this as well. Yes, he's higher than we are. Yes, he is greater. He is master, but he's also friend. He is worthy of our respect. You remember as he began the Great Commission, as Matthew has it recorded for us, in Matthew chapter 28, before he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he had already said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Matthew 28 and verse 18. He is Lord. He is God. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Several years ago, probably 20 years ago or so, there was a teaching that kind of made the rounds in what we might call more academic circles. But the ramifications of it, we still feel in what we might call the broader Christian world today. It was called the no-lordship doctrine, the no-lordship school of thought. And the thinking was this. We need to accept Jesus as Savior, but we don't have to accept Him as Lord. Now, to all everybody, I see people going, what? Because that sounds bizarre to us. And like I said, it was sort of academic, sort of philosophical, and those sort of, but the, the backing of it was basically this. God is the one we take commands from. Jesus isn't. Look, Jesus is God. All authority is His. But we still feel the ramifications of it because it all stems from the idea that I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't mind singing songs to Jesus and calling Him my Savior and my friend and all those sorts of things, but this idea of Him being Lord and Master, I'm not sure I like that. But there is one Lord. He is Jesus. We must follow Him. And we must stand for that concept that He is worthy of our devotion and He is also worthy of our respect. Also on the list, there is one faith. I get very tired of hearing people talk about having a certain faith tradition or you have your faith and I'll have my faith. That, that language may sound good for a while, but it has zero merit in Scripture. Over and over and over again, the New Testament makes it clear that there really is one faith. Again, Jude in verse 3, we contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And obviously here in Ephesians 4, Paul listed as one of the ones. One faith. That idea of there being one faith, one body of doctrine that's worth fighting for. That may not be all that popular, maybe all that PC or whatever, but it's exactly what the Bible tells us. But the question becomes, what, what, is, what is that faith? What is the faith? It's interesting, if you tie this list in Ephesians chapter 4 and notice the order of things, how it fits with some other things in Scripture, just by way of example, think about Mark 16 and verse 16. Jesus, the one Lord, said unto them, He who believes the one faith and is baptized, one baptism will be saved. You ever thought about that? That's the same order as this list. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, what were they were to believe? What was the one faith? That Jesus is Lord. It's the doctrine that He gives. 
It's the teachings that He has already shared. This is not some kind of random list. But we need to be willing to contend, as, Paul, as Jude writes, contend earnestly for that faith. Do I really stand for it? Do I really stand firm upon it? Do I really defend it and guard it? Well, that's part of what's going on here. But here's where I want to tie this lesson back to last week's lesson. There is one faith, the teachings of the New Testament. Those things, everyone in this room needs to be willing to stand up for, defend, unify upon, be united upon. But that also implies that anything not found in the New Testament is not worth arguing about. It's not worth fighting about. If I'm supposed to be exerting every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit, then when something falls in the realm of opinion or in the realm of expediency, or in the realm of just some tradition, or the realm of what what I might like or my whims. Folks, it's not worth arguing over. It's not worth fighting about. The New Testament's worth fighting for. Opinions aren't. And it's really easy to go, amen, that's exactly right, until they come after your program, (laughs) or until until they decide to, to change something the way you may think it needs to be done, or you think is wise, or whatever it happens to be. But if I'm going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I'm going, to, I'm going to stand for those, as we used to say, thus saith the Lord's. And other stuff I'm not going to worry about. I know I've used this illustration before, but I have to use it again because it's one of my favorite stories I've ever been told. It's a true story. It's a congregation, I'll just say less than 500 miles from here. How about that? Is that, that generic enough? <laughs> Where they were growing, the community was growing a little bit, but the congregation was growing very large, a lot, lot of evangelistic work. They had gone, they had outgrown their auditorium. They had gone to two services. They were getting ready to outgrow two services. And they decided it was time to build a new auditorium, but they were landlocked. So they got some contractors or architects or whatever and had them draw up plans. And what it was going to take was actually deconstructing part of their auditorium that was existing. But it was an old, beautiful, basically historic auditorium. So the elders presented the plan. They tried to look at other ways. There, was, there wasn't another way to do it. And they presented the plan to the congregation. They knew there was going to be blowback because this was a historic building. And when that service ended, the preacher I, who I heard tell the story said, I was staying in the back like preachers do, just expecting, you know, no telling what that coming Sunday. And one of the oldest members there, an older lady, came up to him and put her finger right in his face and said, I don't like this one bit. And he said, my thought was, oh my, what's getting ready to happen here? But then she brought her finger back down, her face calmed, and she said, but I trust my elders. And if they say that's what's needed for this church to grow, I'll go along with it. That's one faith. Because this was not a New Testament matter. This was an opinion matter. She expressed her thoughts, and she moved on with her life. The faith is worth defending. Opinions aren't. And then Paul says, there is also one baptism. And that may seem like a curious inclusion in this list because in the New Testament, there are more than one baptisms. There's the baptism of fire, there's the baptism of Moses, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are about seven different baptisms found in the New Testament. So why would, why would Paul say there's only one? Because there's only one that will continue onward. There's only one that lives on past the age of the New Testament. The word baptism, of course, just means immersion. 
But the statement here that there is just one, as Burton Kaufman says, means there's only one that pertains to the Christian life in the present day. This is the baptism of the Great Commission. The baptism for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Some of the religious world say, well, maybe this is Holy Spirit baptism. We know that's not the case. Because Holy Spirit baptism was always connected with the work of the apostles to confirm their miraculous works. There aren't any apostles left. And the age of miracles has ceased. Ephesians 4 talks about that, as we already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. This is the one baptism that continues. The baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. Only that immersion, only that plunging pictures what can save us. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote about elsewhere in Romans chapter 6. That eliminates infants from being baptized because they don't have anything to believe on or repent of in order to understand what they're picturing in that uh, act. Now, sometimes we can be made fun of for talking about baptism so well. That's all you all ever talk about is baptism, right? But folks, it's very inclusion in this list in Ephesians chapter 4 is reason enough to never quit talking about it. Because if we are willing to stand for that one hope or the one Lord or the one Spirit or the one Father, then we should also be willing to stand with the one baptism. Because there is only one. And it's the only thing that will save the souls of men and women. And then Paul ends the list with one God and Father of all. Now, we might have thought that Paul would have started there. One God. That's kind of one of the ultimate statements of Scripture, one of the ultimate beliefs in Scripture. And maybe he puts it last for emphasis' sake. But I think he also puts it last because he wants it to be what ties the list together. Remember, he has already listed the Spirit as the second thing and the Lord, Christ, as the fourth thing. Now, number seven is the one Father. The Trinity is complete. You know, we see people in the world all over the place who worship all kinds of gods, totem poles, and go to other... My dad's been to India a couple of times and seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of idols there that people worship. We don't see that as much in our country. People bowing down to, to wood and stone and those sorts of things. And sometimes because those other religions are so far off from us and so bizarre to us and even so curious to us, we just kind of shake our heads and go, boy, isn't that interesting? Isn't that kind of a weird way to live? Folks, those people are lost because they're not following the one Father. And we have got to get that in our minds. It's not just a curiosity. It's falsehood. But Paul ends the list by doing something interesting. Did you notice he says there's one God and Father of all, but he says, who is over all and through all and in you all. There are a lot of things that can mean or why Paul would write it, but I want to share two with you. One is simply that God is everywhere or over everything. And it certainly is implied and stated here. But consider the context. Consider the full context of Ephesians chapter 4. What is Paul writing about? And what is the emphasis of all these lessons? It's unity. What Paul is trying to say is this, that there is a closeness, if you will, among God's own nature, that is the ultimate example of what he is writing about. He is over all, through all, in all. You can't be more one than that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the Old Testament Israelites were to teach their children, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is only one God, but that is 
He is perfectly consistent. He is perfectly unchanging. We might say He is perfectly unified in His nature. But He is also the God and the Father of all. All. You don't have a God of this nation and a God of this nation and a God of that people group and a God of this people group. You have God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is over all. Now, what does this list possibly have to do with healthy things growing? This this sounds like a standalone lesson, and it very well could be. And we could take each of the seven things and make them really a standalone series, but for sure, seven lessons. What does this have to do with healthy things grow? We want the church to grow, but only healthy things grow. So the church must be healthy. How do these seven ones fit in with that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth or gave the increase. What did Paul plant and what did Apollos water? Well, they weren't putting seeds in the ground. That's not what they're talking about here. They're not putting seeds in the ground and growing some kind of olive tree or something. What are they talking about? They're talking about what Jesus said all the way back when He was on the earth and He gave the parable of the sower and He explained it when He said, the seed is the Word of God. What makes a healthy church grow? Yes, it's healthy attitudes last week, verses 1, 2, and 3. But it is also continually planting the same seed that Jesus himself planted, that Paul planted, that Apollos planted, if I may extend the verse, that Peter would plant, that Jude would tell us to defend, that James would tell us to uphold and to live by faith. We must continue to hold only to the Word of God. Now, you may say, now wait a second. I know a lot of places where they don't really hold the Word of God all that tightly. And it seems like every time I turn on the television or every time I get a bulletin or something, their numbers are going up. They're growing. And you just said healthy things grow, and part of that health is these seven ones. Remember last week, we said we're talking about growing in the eyes of God. We're not just talking about adding numbers. We're not just talking about building bigger buildings or needing a second service or every week in the bulletin, the numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We're talking about the kind of growth that only God Himself gives. We must plant the seed, which is the Word of God. We must water that seed with our attitudes and our actions and continual teaching. And then it's up to God Himself to give healthy increase, healthy growth. No matter what other places might do that draw numbers, I want to follow God's plan. Because I want to make sure that I'm always standing where He is and defending what He gives. This morning, have you submitted your life to the one Lord who is Jesus, 
who said you must believe in the one faith, the things he taught, and then be baptized, the one baptism, for the remission of your sins. And God will be your one Father. Maybe this morning as a Christian, you've done those things, but you haven't really been upholding it and living it. and You're not helping the health of the church by defending the truth and teaching the truth. We want healthy things to grow. We want to be healthy so we can grow, I should say. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not a faithful Christian, God has given you the option, the choice, to make that right. He has given you the choice to allow Him to be Lord of your life by following His plan. So whatever your need is this morning, will you come? Will you stand and sing to encourage you?